Hi, this is Kutsia Naki, and welcome to another episode of Down to the Struts. In our last episode, we spoke with Dr. Roger Ideshi about the need to reimagine our educational, social, and cultural spaces to build access for children with intellectual and developmental disabilities. In this week's episode, we'll return to the topic of education, but from a new perspective. We'll discuss the importance of infusing disability positive messaging and disability history into K through 12 education and the need to develop leadership capacity among disabled students on college campuses. We'll listen in on my conversation with Alan Holdsworth, Director of Disability Equality Education, a Philadelphia-based nonprofit dedicated to this very mission. Okay, let's get down to it. Thank you so much, Alan, for joining me on the podcast today. Can you start us off by telling us a little bit about your background and how you came to found the organization Disability Equality Education? Okay, uh, well, you'll get your listeners will know straight straight away that I'm not from America. I'm actually from England, from Manchester, England, and I've been a disability rights activist since the mid '80s, I would say, and I've always been kind of interested in in education. And in England, I was involved with a called Disability Equality in Education and also a group called ALFI, which is the Alliance for Inclusive Education. So I was actually helping in Birmingham desegregate uh, their schools and nurseries uh, with, with, with the uh, Director of Education. So when I came over here, we started off by founding a group called ALFI, and we actually did some uh, demonstrations on the 50th anniversary of Brown versus Board, saying it's about time disabled people were not segregated in education too. And we did get some money from the school district to look at how, how schools can become more inclusive. And then, well, almost four years ago now, we got a grant from the Pennsylvania Developmental Disabilities Council to actually challenge the stigma of disability in education. And we, our approach was uh, to look at how we can create lessons that uh, include disability, to uh, identify resources that can um, that teachers can use, and also like maybe creating a school calendar uh, of events. So that, you know, so throughout the year, disability kind of pops up in the in the school curriculum and the, in the school program. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And it's wonderful that you were able to bring the work that you were doing in the UK here um, here to the US. So can you dig a little bit deeper into the work of disability equality education? I know, you know, when we spoke previously, you talked about the two areas of work, broadly speaking, one being working in K through 12 education, and then the other being organizing on college campuses. So could you share a little bit more about the programming that you provide and kind of how the organization works with students and educators? Okay, yeah, so we have a, created a website and on the website we have lessons from K to 12 which have been de designed and developed and kind of approved by disabled people because we felt that there's lots of stuff out there but, and it's not all good. So when we, if we recommend the book, we've actually read it and we think, yes, this is a fair representation of disabled people. From that, this, this is a free website. Teachers can go on and just download a lesson plan which is 
aligned to the state standards. So it's already kind of been approved by the state and some of them have actually been approved by national standards. And basically what we're trying to do is give the teachers a break from having to plan a lesson. So they just go on there, all the materials that teachers will need are there on the website. We've even got to the point now where we've downloaded some books, given we're into the COVID era. So, so people can actually read some of the books that we recommend. Some of them are attached to lesson plans. The other thing is that we, at the moment, we're creating four exhibitions. We use a thing called Disability Arts a lot. And we work with a group, another organisation called, which I also founded, called uh, Disability Pride Philadelphia. Through Disability Pride, we've got like contact with lots and lots of great artists in, in all sorts of mediums, like singer-songwriters, poets, painters. We can bring those artists into the schools to actually work with young people, and we have money to pay for that. We, we don't charge the schools anything for that. We actually uh, do the money. We also take part in, if schools are having a diversity fair, quite often they forget disabilities, part of diversity, part of our diverse identities that we have. You know, we actually sort of run stores at those fairs. We do presentations. And also at the moment, we, we actually got, because we've got COVID and, you know, kids are at home all the time, create some of the lesson plans, we've simplified them. So that parents can teach the kids as well, so they can do that on their own. Most of those are, are around books. And what we're finding is why it's important to get disability into the curriculum. If young people from K, K upwards begin to get disability in a way appropriate and is informed, then I think what, that will help to reduce the stigma of disability and all the misinformation and the ignorance that a lot of us have grown up with around uh, disability issues. So that's what we do on the schools and um, on the college level. Obviously, it's different in college because everyone's like it's campuses are very different. So you have small campuses, you have huge campuses. In colleges, what we try to do is create two things in, in the main. One is a calendar of events. And I'll explain what that means in a minute. And then the other one is to actually help disabled students form groups within the college so that they become part of the college government. We help them with all the bylaws and then those groups can then, you know, access college funds. They can use the college auditorium. And we've done some really successful events through these groups. One of the things we've done for the last three years at a place called Millersville University in the centre of PA. We've got a really great partnership with them. And we've done the Disability Pride Day for the last three years. On the Disability Pride Day, the sort of things we did was we had a film with the filmmaker. Uh, we would have musicians forming, doing a concert. We did a march on the campus. We did an actual Pride March marching around the campus. And we, there's a street on the, in, on the just off Millersville campus, which is called Normal Street. So we had to take a picture we <laughs> standing on the Normal Street. We did some street art, 12 foot by 8 foot canvas. And then these little trays with paint in them. And what you do is you'd roll over in your wheelchair and you make a picture. So we call it like wheelchair art. But you could also use like a blind person who's got a cane with that little roller. You can use that as well. So we were using all these different implements and then we just hung it up. And on the first one, we actually, it was, they were very keen to do some sort of direct action in form of protest. So what we found was that the cafeteria where the students would go for lunch, they have turnstiles which wheelchairs couldn't get through so they had to go all the way around to do it so everybody knew about it the provost knew about it the head of catering knew about it but we just did this like faux protest and it was really kind of cool and next year when we went and guess what the turnstiles were were now accessible so that was a really fun day and then we had student groups came along and they had their t-shirt they made their own t-shirts and so on so that's the kind of thing we've been offering other colleges as well. We also have like, at the moment, we are creating four exhibitions. One for each, like one for elementary, one for middle, one for high and one for college. And these are being commissioned by disabled artists to actually be both virtual, but also once this is over, 
hopefully they'll be freestanding. Those exhibitions, in a sense, will help create a discussion. So, for instance, in we did have one exhibition, which we've already done, which we've had up in about one of the colleges, Butts County Community College. And this is like a 22-tile exhibition. The tiles are about two foot by two foot, just a history timeline of disability uh, from way back somewhere. I think we start off with like um, sign language and uh, we end up with adapting DC into 2017, saving Obamacare. Everyone was seeing it. Yes, you went to the cafeteria. That's where the exhibition was along that corridor. So we got the very good response from that. And both the groups and Millersville and at Bucks County have won the uh, diversity award for the whole college. And this year we're planning things like film festivals, which are going to be coming up in March. Last year we did um, on the International Day of Disabled People, which is December the 3rd, if you didn't know, uh, we did a thing called Flybaid. <laughs> and this was a worldwide event. We had at least eight countries tuning into it and it was a whole day of mostly music performers and disabled artists from all over the world so we had people from singapore from australia people from england germany brazil we got thousands and thousands of people watching that in the day as well and it's creating kind of a climate of you know a kind of events what we're really trying to do so that disabled people and their issues are not invisible to the general public that's so fantastic. Thank you for painting a picture of the work that you're doing, Alan. As myself, as a blind person, we never learned about disability history or talked about disability positive messages in school. And likewise, I, I never had this sort of mechanism and a resource to help organize students on campus. So your, your work is so important. It sounds to me, so right now, the, the focus is on Pennsylvania, so Pennsylvania school systems, and then also uh, universities and colleges in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Do you envision this model being replicated in other states? Is that something that has been uh, sort of going on and spreading based on the work that you've been doing? Uh, yeah, well, to be honest, with the website being free, anyone can access them. I mean, we have people from all over the world using the website resource. Of course, we're measured in terms of our grant, what we're doing in Pennsylvania, because it's a Pennsylvania grant. But to be honest with you, that doesn't seem to me, since we've been working on this, you know, we know that other teachers are using it. We also post most of our lessons and some of our resources on a, a national website called Share My Lesson, which teachers use, and we're one of their main partners now. They really like what we do. I think they have about a million teachers who have signed up for that site, so that's good. Um, and, and eventually, we're going to unload all our, all our lessons onto Share My Lesson as well as have our own site. And then on, on Disability Pride, because we're in a COVID situation and we're all kind of at home, the advantage of that is we can get different groups from different colleges to actually meet on a Zoom call. So just like what we're doing kind of right now. There are some colleges where there's only like two people who are interested at the moment, but so they join in with other groups to be more successful. And basically what you're building up there is a whole network of youth leaders for the future. And we're going to be beginning to sort of move. We've been doing a lot on history, a lot on English literature, English language, a little bit on math. I think what we want to do in the next year is we want to start to begin to do advocacy training. We want to start to train out young advocates and give them some skills about how to do that. I prefer collective advocacy or community advocacy rather than self-advocacy because self-advocacy, it helps that person, but that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. You know, usually people solve problems when they work together and come together. So within the advocacy thing, we'll be talking about things like negotiation skills, how to cut an issue. Do you know what cut an issue means? Or should I explain that? Oh, please do explain. Okay, so um, let me start off by saying I'm concerned about stigma in education. 
well, that's just too big to handle. So you understand what I say. So what let's say, so, okay, so what do we do, right? We have advised and educated politicians, I've got to be careful not to say the L word here, to create, craft a bill, right, uh, to go before the Pennsylvania Commonwealth, which will mandate all schools to embrace a disability curriculum. So now you're going from a concern, which is about stigma, and you've got it down to a bill, and then you can go out now, who can give you what you want? And that's, oh, God, it's the politician. Let's go knock on the doors and, you know, see if you can get this uh, campaign going. So you, you go from concern to issue, you break it down to something which is manageable, but is also specific, identifying the people who can give you what you want, and then you go ahead and do it. So we would be teaching people how to do that, both at probably more high school and college kind of, I think, well, not necessarily. I think we could have some role play fun with even with kindergartners. Yeah, I think the concept of collective advocacy is so important. And just for our listeners, the L word that Alan refers to is lobbying. So as a 501c3 organization, which is a tax status here in the U.S., organizations with that status have uh, have limitations on what they can do in terms of advocating with a legislative body about passage of particular laws. I think it's so fantastic that you're arming kids very young with the tools they need to work together collaboratively build community and and do advocacy as you described it. So I wanted to turn for a second to the K through 12 education and perspective of educators. Can you share a little bit about, you know, what you think is most important for educators to do? What what strategies are most effective to make sure that they're bringing disability education like disability history, disability pride into their classrooms and into educating both their disabled and non-disabled students. So could you share some concrete examples of things that you found effective in the work that you've done? Sure, I, I think as well, I think one thing that's very misunderstood about the whole project quite often, and it's even misunderstood by the federal government, to be honest, they think it's all about disabled people. It's actually the opposite. It's actually about the non-disabled people, you know, never thought about disability, you know, at all. Our target isn't like actually the disabled people, it's, it's the non-disabled people is the is the culture of the school i think what we're trying to do is change the school culture and one of the things we did very successfully in england is another concept called the whole school policy so i unpack that a little bit yes please do i think the difference between america and england in a way is that over here you have a thing called idea the individuals with disability education act your whole focus and the focus i see a it's first of all it's parent driven Right? So it's mostly parents who are going to be involved in the activism. It's not the young people themselves. Those parents have probably just got as much stigma in them as anybody else, you know, in, in a way. And also, it's usually about the individual. What inclusion seems to be in America, and I'm not saying it's all perfect in England by any, by any means. I think the theory is your kid get, goes to the kindergarten, and the kindergarten, if they're good, you know, they have all the special ed teachers, they have like, you know, and speech therapists, physios, etc. And they all get it to make sure that that kid is who is the problem is then solved by what they do. So, you know, if it's like, say, a blind kid goes into kindergarten, yeah, okay, everything's going to be moving, everything's going to be good. And then the blind kid gets into first grade, everything goes back. So it's like a bubble. You're going through a bubble. So things improve as the student's there in that particular situation. But then once that isn't there and so they may talk about being blind in the in kindergarten and then the next group hasn't got any blind person they said they don't bother talking about it so it kind of thinking about it like that so a whole school policy means that you're not looking at it from that kind of perspective you're looking at it from the, the actual school itself and you're saying okay and when we say whole school we mean whole school we mean the bus driver we, we mean you know not having segregated transport to school on the bus 
right? We mean the, the people I'm from in England, dinner ladies, or the people who serve your lunch in the school refectory. Yeah, they, they are part of the plan, particularly the people who supervise playground activities in the breaks. That is a really crucial thing. That's where you make friends. So often I, the first thing I do when I've seen a, if I have a look at a school is I go into play, the playground and if I see a bunch of disabled kids against the wall and everybody else doing everything else, I know that we've got some things to sort out here, whole school policy. Every single aspect of the school should have some sort of disability component in, into it and that includes the curriculum and the activities that you do. You don't go on school trips that are literally inaccessible. And just some very simple things we've done. They're like this one. This was in um, this was a K, K to three, three grade in, in a school district. And we didn't do the lesson, but we wanted to observe teachers doing it. So we went up for a day and just sat there, actually just watching them do this lesson that we designed. It was around a book called Hello Dog, Goodbye Dog. And Hello Dog, Goodbye Dog. Uh, and we, we chose that because the story of the dog is the dog loves uh, his kid. Right, and the kid, sorry, the kid goes to school and then the dog follows him to school and just tears the school up. Basically, <laughs> the head principal's office everywhere. He eats all the food in the canteen and all that kind of stuff. So in the end, they decide to, uh, to send him away to be trained, to go to college, the dog. So the dog becomes trained as a help dog, gets his little diploma, and then, you know, he's very good and well-behaved. And the whole point of that was that there was some young person who was coming into the school next year who was going to have a help dog. So there was going to be a help dog in the school. So... So from K to three, all kids then kind of knew the rules about what you can and can't do with the help dog uh, and why shouldn't they have a dog and why can't I have a dog? And so that was one of the ways in which, you know, that kid who then came, you know, had, had a more positive experience from his peers. I think that's that's really helpful to make this more concrete about some of the things that teachers and students and staff in a school can do. Drawing from my own personal story, I was a child who was bullied, so I had some vision. I have a degenerative condition, so I lost vision over time. And when I was in school, everyone, everyone thought I, quote, looked normal. I didn't use a cane during the day and things like that, but they didn't understand what it meant to have low vision. And so I would drop a pencil on the floor and I would have to feel around to find it and boys would make fun of me and call me blindy and it was really damaging but you know if we educated kids from a very young age to be quote normalized to seeing disabled people and understanding that that's okay that could have prevented a lot of harms for me and I'm, I'm certainly not alone in that type of a story so I, I think what you're sharing in these exercises can be so important and I'm looking forward to sharing your, the, a link to your website so that educators who listen to this podcast can access these curricula and these activities to do with their students so I think that's that's really fantastic. I can give you a couple more examples if you'd like I mean it's just uh, keeping on that kind of subject there I and mean, there's another book I don't know again which is there it's a kid's book called My Traveling Eye and then this is about a young person who wears an eye patch and then gets teased so her mother makes it really cool <laughs> all the kids want this really kind of psychedelic eye patch and that's another kind of book again so let's try and get the experience of disability out a couple of days ago we did um, a lesson called dad and me in the morning which is about a deaf boy and his father who go for a walk and watch the sunrise on the beach it's a really good lesson because on each page of the book there's different ways that people are communicating so people don't only communicate by speech or sight, they, they communicate by facial expression, as well as the things like some people use sign language, some people woken up by a buzzer, yeah, they hold hands, you know, there's all sorts of ways. And so we actually ask the young people to sort of reread the book saying, you know, how many ways of communicating can you see in this book? The, the lesson at the end means, yeah, there's all different ways of communicating and nothing strange about people using sign language, basically. 
Right. Yeah. So turning to the to the students on the college campuses. So we talked, you know, you talked a lot about giving students the tools to organize themselves. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what strategies you think are more most effective as you go on to college campuses and build the capacity of disabled students to organize. I think one of the things that I think people would, who are thinking about starting this off is you don't need to start big. You can start small. So, I mean, the Butch County Group started with four people in the whole college, yeah? Mm-hmm. It's now it's grown to 24 now. So it takes time for it to grow. Clearly, there's also a throughput of students. So you really need to have a good faculty member, at least one good faculty member who's interested in this work, because they'll be there probably longer than the students. It's, you know, because the students might be in the last year, they're really good, and then that student leaves, and it's like, oh, it's not a good number. I think that's part of So you have to have that partnership between the student group and the faculty. And faculty needs to want to do that. So we do have like about eight colleges now, which have faculty members who are trying to help. We're trying to help start groups, and they're all at different stages of development. I think the thing is that there needs to be a balance between what you would like them to do and then what they would like to do. So one of the things that one of the groups did was they, they did like an open mic night. They've also had a disability quiz, which I thought was really good. And, and they designed this. I didn't even give them this. They were designing this. I, I think there was like 10 questions. I got nine of them right. I thought I would get them all right. So, <laughs> I mean, do you know how many presidents of, uh, of the United States have been disabled? I don't know the answer to that. What is, what is it? It's 11. That's significant. <laughs> Including George Washington. So there you go. That's like 20% almost. Yeah, yeah. Quite amazing, really, when you think of it. One of the guys who wrote the Constitution, yeah, was also dyslexic mm-hmm. as well. So to dig into that. So anyway, they had the quiz. The open night night was really funny because, like, some people get really good at singing. Yeah, and other people, she said, you have to bring a talent. So this one girl, she just came in and did handstands on the Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> anything, anything, anything would go, you know what I'm saying? Some of it's fun, you know, and then some of it is about, you know, having things on campus that you want to sort of change. We, we had a lot of plans for some open-air Pride events uh, before COVID hit, and it was really a shame. So even though we can do them on COVID, eventually we'll get back in the classroom, and eventually they can go and have an impact on the small, smaller campuses. I think on the larger campuses, you're talking more about just creating a program of events, but also having a support group. Then one of the saddest things that happened was one of the students in one of the groups did die of COVID. And that group was really, really, really supportive of the family and of each other. I mean, if you ever want to know, well, why do you need a group? Well, that's, that was a very, very good reason to have a group. They had a memorial service thing. The, the group uh, had a T-shirt made uh, with his face on it and stuff like that. And, you know, in memory of it. And so some of it's like fun stuff and some of it's not so fun, but they kind of bond. I mean, they meet every, probably every two weeks and they, they, they have to find a time when none of them studying. So that's always kind of one of the problems that they have. It's important, I think, just because what we're not asking them to do is form a little club which doesn't impact the rest of the college. The club is there to impact the college, not just to be sort of insular and, and you know, just be mutually supportive, which is great. But I think also it's about having things to do that actually, you know, to the college. And some of these groups are actually quite open to having allies in the group. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily, you don't have to be disabled to be involved. You just have to realize that the group's being led by disabled people. I'm curious about, you know, when you engage with students on a campus, you know, how, how long is your engagement before they, they kind of start to run themselves? I don't know if there is a typical timeline or, or and how have you observed the longevity of these groups once you kind of take a step back and let them lead and move forward? That's a good question. I think it's just can't really put a time on it because people work in different ways. I mean, what you try and do is if you feel, if I felt that they 
we're like, you know, not quite getting there. We, we try to be more involved. And by more involved, what that might mean is one of the college groups, they have a, I can't remember what you call them. Right? That first week of college, you say, welcome to wherever. And it's like a fair, and it's like a club fair. So all the different clubs say, come and sign up for the club fair. So then they're all in the kind of same room. So what we did for the disability club, we brought a disabled musician in the performance in this big, with all the clubs. So it was like, wow, can a disabled person performing? I was like, kidding me. So it's like, that's cool, yeah. So they, they signed lots of people on that day. And then, of course, it, then it's about whether they have to do all the work in terms of keeping the group informed about what's going on. So you need to find that person or those people, that group of people in the group who are prepared to, you know, make sure that people are contacted about the meetings, you know, if there's anything, problems, that they begin to do that. And it's a great skill for them to get. I mean, in terms of like college, it's a great thing to put on your resume once you leave. It really does depend on each group. At the moment, like the Millersville group, no, it's not going so good at the moment, right? No, it's not going so good. So we're talking a lot more with them at the moment. So, it's, you know, what else can you do? It's COVID's hard. It's, you know, it's hard because you're not like on college, you can't see each other. And so just making sure that the faculty members are also advising them about how to get into those events. So like when we're doing the film festival, which Millville is going to be part of, uh, we will make sure that the, the disability clubs advertise you know, high and wide at that point. Yeah, and I, I love the point about having a, a faculty champion. I think that's really important because they will stay on as the students cycle through the school and they can develop a sort of foundational base and create longevity for a group. So I think that's a really, a really important point. And I, I thought it was really interesting. Earlier, you were talking about how COVID has created this opportunity for student groups from different schools to connect virtually and learn from each other and build a kind of bigger network. So I think there's been so much that's been unexpected about the pandemic. And I think there are challenges that you described, like in terms of being able to be on campus, but then there's also opportunities, which is connecting with people you wouldn't otherwise because they're far away. So like, uh, I think it, you know, in April, when, when things like, when, you've got to think about when finals are, but I think we're going to do a Saturday in April where we're going to have both faculty and students coming together from all the universities that we work with to talk about how they can go, how their club's going, do they want to set up a club and so on, yeah? Mm -hmm. And then have the young people talking about what they do in their club and begin to share any ideas about what, you know, what these clubs can do. Because they have to do something. There's no point in having a club if you don't want to do anything. And I think young people have the better ideas than we do, to be honest. So we're really excited about that. I mean, we don't quite set a date for that. I think it's going to be whatever the second Saturday is in, in, in April, something like that. I'm really excited about that. That will be like statewide. I mean, anyone from any, any, any universities, any faculty, no, most is probably faculty members from each university getting involved and finding out what we do that's going to be really cool in terms of what we want to do for the rest of this project. That's wonderful. And I really hope to see this model replicated in other states. You've had so much success in Pennsylvania, and so it'd be great to see it proliferate. I'm excited to see that happen, and I hope it happens at a national scale as well. So this has been such a great conversation, Alan, and I wanted to wrap it up by asking you, what advice would you have for students on college campuses, educators, parents? How can we all work together? together to build a more disability conscious, disability positive world for disabled people? The biggest problem as well, just like I'm answering that question, but the biggest problem in this is what stigma is about is attitude, isn't it? Now we know that through the social model of disability, you can split it down into environment, which is kind of easier. You know, will curb cuts, wheelchairs, accessible transport, wide doors. That's kind of like there. And you can measure that because you can say, oh, well, that door wasn't 
madness. Now it is quite a simple thing to sort of look at from a systematic point of view. That's even that's, that is complicated, but you, in the end you can measure it. You can say that the school has developed more inclusive practice, but what you can't do is measure attitude change. It's really hard. So what you have to do is actually you know create a climate of inclusion, basically, and you create a climate of inclusion by having disability in all aspects of what you do. So I think the more resources we can put out there for parents, for teachers, the more they have at their disposal, which they haven't got to create because it's already there. But from a national perspective, we did some research. We didn't want to reinvent the wheel, you know, when we started out this. We thought, well, maybe some other state has already got this curriculum, but they haven't. Some of them have got some bits of it. There's some nice stuff going on up in Seattle. I did a little bit good stuff going on up in Boston, but I'm, I'm with you some of that. I mean, we, we talked to them and we've been, we shared each other's resources. An inclusion environment, a whole school policy. I think it's about uh, parents should be thinking about the thing in, in a much more wider level than just their own child. And I think uh, when they say whole school policy, then you know, it's bullying. Is disability part of the bullying policy? Is has that been recognised? What about cyberbullying? How are disabled people being, you know, treated in, in cyberspace as well? So all these things took come around. I mean, it's huge. But I think what you have to do is just deal with what's in front of you, but then also work collectively to try and build bring about a more inclusive environment. I mean, if you don't know enough about inclusion, please read about it, because as we sometimes say, the road to hell is lately with good intentions. You, you really need, need to sort of know what, what this really means, what inclusion is and what it isn't. Absolutely. And going back to something you were saying earlier, on one hand, it's really important that disabled people lead a lot of this work and are the ones designing these curricula, etc. However, non-disabled people People need to be active participants and that needs to start really young so that in the end, disabled people aren't constantly doing the work of having to fight for inclusion. If you have, say, a non-disabled student who's been educated in this disability positive, disability conscious environment, when they go to their workplace, when they go to their civic organizations in whatever they do, they'll be conscious and they'll be part of the solution rather than part of the problem, right? Exactly, yeah, and I think that's really is like you say, because I mean, at the end of the day, like, in these schools, you leave with either information or ignorance. We prefer them to leave with information about disabled people rather than ignorance. And I think that's like the biggest challenge. It's a big thing. So that's why I said we need to cut the issue down. So what we're trying to do, like what we're doing like tomorrow, oh, tomorrow we're doing a professional development for teachers in a whole school district. So that will help them know what we're doing in terms of resources and what we can do to help. You've got to break it down into those those chunks and then think about in, in those ways. The other thing we've been doing, which we took advantage of as well, we, we do kind of target colleges which uh, have future teachers, education colleges. And then we get the future teachers to teach the lessons. And that's another way of getting into schools where the student teacher goes in and says, hey, look, I've got these lessons, you know, and they, they do them as part of their project. So that's another successful thing we've, we've, we've done. We've done that with over 120 future teachers. That is such an important point, and I'm really glad you brought that up. What they need to know, they can take that into their work as well. Well, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much, Alan, for taking the time to speak with me. No, no problem. Loved, loved it. Yeah, love to do it again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Down to the Struts. This podcast would not be possible without the energy and creativity of Adrian Kong, Ilana Nevins, and Avery Annapole. 
To learn more about the project and access resources from this and past episodes, visit our website at www.downtothestruts.com. You can subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you love to listen. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks as always for your support and looking forward to the next episode so we can get back down to it.